You're going to love this. Just love it. They're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU The Voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Bellingham, Washington, ISIS, on KZAX 94.9 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week. The broadcast is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. And that's me. I am Brad. And I'm Desi. And I'm 12 feet tall with extra heads, and I can look through your computer right now, and I can see you. Now, none of those are lies. Those are alternative facts. There are no lies anymore. Those have been exorcised by presidential fiat. There are only facts, as determined by Little Hands Donnie and his leggy blonde sidekick. But seriously, I'm Angie Cuero sitting in for Brad and Desi today. God, I do not even know where to start. Donald Trump, who we know is a weasel and a toddler and a megalomaniac, still deserves credit, if you want to call it that. He gets what he wants, and he gets it how he wants to. Thus, we see this blizzard of actions that can barely be digested, all coming out in 24 hours. We can't, we can't understand and analyze these. We can barely count them all. So let's go down a partial list. Bear in mind, even as I am speaking, he's probably trampling some other freedom to death. But here we go. He has already started in on Obamacare and Medicaid, the third rail, the traditional open-ended Medicaid funding would be replaced by block grants, and that limits coverage. Look at the New York Times quote from Governor Robert Bentley of Alabama, a Republican, who says that if a block grant reduced federal funds for the program, quote, states should be given the ability to reduce Medicaid benefits or enrollment to impose premiums or other cost-sharing requirements on beneficiaries, and to reduce Medicaid spending in other ways. Yep. Does Trump even know what he just ordered? The Times quotes, right off the bat, what do they do? Something incredibly cryptic that nobody understands, and that comes from a former Republican Senate aide. Trump is also defying the millions of Americans who marched over the weekend by reinstating the global gag rule. That means NGOs that receive funding from the U.S. cannot even mention abortion. And we're not talking about offering the option. We're talking about even acknowledging that abortion exists. They put that out there. They lose their funding. Back to the list, he has overseen the shutdown of the White House comments line. The website page that would give you that phone number lets you know that the comments line is closed now, but you can go to Facebook and talk to them there. Also gone any mention of LGBTQ on the site. The Spanish version of the site is gone. Now, Sean Spicer was asked whether or if the Spanish translation would go back up. He tap danced. Trump promised corporations that he will eliminate up to 75% of regulations that, quote, hinder their business. You know, the regulations that try to keep workers in decent conditions or keep pollution at bay. 
that try to preserve even a tiny percentage of nature from resource exploitation? All of that hinders business, and he's going to eliminate up to 75% of that. One way to assess this deluge is to look at Kellyanne Conway's remarkable alternative facts discussion with Chuck Todd. I know you've heard the clips, but listen again, because I'm really going to break this down here. In case you missed it, Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, the same belated style we've seen in the way of too many media outlets, he's finally catching on that reporting and interviewing are not the same as taking dictation and sharing copies. After Sean Spencer's bizarre, unhinged attack on the press for allegedly misrepresenting the record-setting throngs that turned out to huzzah our new dear leader, they had dared to show, you know, pictures that showed quite clearly it wasn't that well attended. Now, that's not a matter of counting noses. Trump claimed the crowd stretched 20 blocks from his bad comb over over to the Washington Monument, and maybe in the bubble of his incredible narcissism, it looked like that, but People with eyeballs and cameras and airplanes all saw that area and said, no. We're talking empty viewing stands along the walking route and vast stretches of open ground along that 20 blocks as he desecrated the oath of office. So Spicer did his best imitation of a puff adder, and he went before the press spitting and gasping and accusing them of colluding and conniving and in general being very bad people, which takes us back to Chuck Todd who confronted Kellyanne Conway with Spicer's roster of untruths. He didn't say lies. He kept saying falsehood. Chuck, the word is lies. But stop a minute to savor the very idea of asking Kellyanne Conway about telling the truth. But I digress. So here's the bit of beauty that they created together. Chuck asked why this is the foot Spicer wants to step off on with the press and the American people. But the first time he confronts the public, it's a falsehood? Chuck, I mean, if we're going to keep referring to our press secretary in those types of terms, I think that we're going to have to rethink our relationship here. Whoa, that went downhill quickly. Now, did you hear what I just heard there? You want me to stop beating you up? I may just have to go find another girlfriend. You call me out on my behavior. I will punish you with my absence. I will change the rules. I am in charge. That is, I am not exaggerating. That is classic abuser language. Classic abuser language. Anyway, so she tries to distract him with some tale about how the press tails lies, so he pushes her. I did you, answer no, your question. No, you did not. You did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. Don't be so dramatic, Chuck. See, Chuck is the problem here. Not Trump's original lies, not Spicer's meltdown, not her own evasiveness. Chuck is the problem. Now, that is what you call a classic ad hominem attack. Don't answer the question. Attack the questioner. So we go back to the big payoff here. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. To Chuck's credit, he does not give up. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. And then she really cuts loose. This is a classic what they call gish gallop. And that is when you throw so much spaghetti at the wall, there is no way to detangle it all, let alone pull out a noodle and contemplate it. Now, remember, he has asked very specifically and several times now why Spicer would spout easily disproven, quote-unquote, falsehoods at his first press meeting. And away she goes. Chuck, do you think it's a fact or not that millions of people have lost their, their plans or health insurance? Do you think insurance it's a fact that everything we President heard from Obama? these women yesterday Do you think it's a fact that millions of women, 16.1 million women, do you think it's a fact that millions don't have health Do you think it's a fact that we spent billions of dollars on education? These are the facts that I want the press corps to cover. Now, with all this, here's my favorite part. And you did not answer the question. 
I did you, answer no, your question. No, you did not. You did yes, not answer did. the She lied about answering a question about lying. She was asked about lying and she lied. Now, this is the same kind of technique that we're seeing from Donnie and his henchmen and Han shows. Don't answer, deflect. Don't defend, attack. And make sure that nobody can possibly see that wall throw all the spaghetti you can at it. Thus, this flurry of action that we've been seeing in, what, 24, 36 hours? Donnie hurled health care, immigration, abortion rights, and citizen access to government under a fleet of buses. And there's more to come. And he put a ridiculous number of advisory nominees up for confirmation all at once, where Republicans in turn put ridiculous time constraints on questioning so that true inquiry would be diluted and shackled. It's worked so far. As for the media covering all this, Newt Gingrich has proposed, Media Matters picked this up, by the way, that's where I got it. Gingrich has proposed that press conferences be turned into town halls, where the press would share seating and question time with non-press, interested citizens. Now, that's kind of a twofer for them, because President Love Me, Love Me, Love Me will get his daily dose of adulation from his fan club, which he would die without. And it would, again, dilute access and response. So many fronts to fight on. And some unsolicited advice, but hey, I got the mic. Pick the fronts that matter the most to you. Find those who are battling to fight that and support them. Throw them a bit of money if you got it. Sign up for action updates. Now, I've picked, for example, the ACLU, media outlets, both traditional and new, and abortion rights groups. Those are mine. Those are the ones that I have picked because I know others will pick others. And together we get it all covered. So you pick your own. One, two, three, whatever you have the bandwidth for, that number of causes. And focus. Focus, focus on your chosen causes because that is what the Trump wrecking crew does not want you to be able to do. Coming up next, how to bring activism down to the local level in manageable bites. I'm Angie Coro. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Brad's off today. I'm Angie Cuero sitting in. So about that activism, everybody can't do everything. So we have to move on multiple fronts and we have to capitalize on the energy that we saw out in the streets in every major city and across the world. How do we as individuals, each of us, get something done? Amisha Upathia has started an organization to do exactly that kind of coordinating. Still We Rise is just getting underway. There are meetings here and there, but the goals are to become much larger. She's starting here in California, and I got her on the phone to talk it over. Amisha, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me on your program. So I, I saw Still We Rise. Someone on my neighborhood group shared it to say there's a gathering in my city uh, coming up. And I was impressed with the fact that the word is already getting out there. The other thing that came to mind is that I had a discussion 
a few days ago with one of the people who marched with John Lewis and with Martin Luther King. And I asked him the question that I've heard from so many people is, are we just venting here? You get all these people out the street. Is it a feel-good thing or are they going to get something done? And just to let you know what he said, he said both functions are important. When, when he marched with King, he said he wouldn't know how to write laws. So he marched to raise visibility, to get the emotional lift, and then they supported the NAACP in actually drafting laws. So that's the context I want to talk to you in, is that, you know, now I think is the time to take all that emotion and, and put it in specific directions. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're set up to do. Yes, I could not agree with that statement more, that you need every angle of this. You need the multitude speaking out that is driven by emotion. And you also need the people who know how to draft legislation, who know how to uh, inform policy and policymakers. And you need the legislators uh, who will actually be voting on the laws and talking about the laws and who are elected officials that represent your voice. And yet, they will not listen to your voice, and this is the reality. Voices are not heard unless they are in multitudes, hmm. often. So that is why it was so important for these marches, because it sent, if nothing else, it sent a clear message to those elected officials out there that there are millions of us. This is not just about, we are against some of the policies that we are afraid may be put forward in the next four years. And your political future is on the line with us So, as citizens. So I think that it is essential to have, um, you know, protest marches or voices being heard through emotion and activism as important as it is to, for, uh, to have lawmakers and people fighting to get the right votes out there in Congress. You know, Amisha, we're famous on the left for the circular firing squad. There's there's so much, you know, squabbling between ourselves about what we want to do and how we want to do it that sometimes the activism gets lost. What do you know from your work? And I can tell from talking to you that, that you have organized people before. What <laughs> What is it that we can do to find the commonalities and worry less about the divisions, to go forward with unity? And just let me put an asterisk on the end of that. Without that unity discrediting the lived experience of people of different races, of different levels of income, we're coming together. And how do we acknowledge everybody's reality? Well, the division is actually what inspired me. So most people started right when Trump won. There was like a this feeling. For me, it started way back during the convention period when after it was announced that Hillary Clinton uh, was the Democratic candidate for president, there was still so much infighting, as you said. There was infighting and distrust amongst progressives, amongst Democrats. And what happened was we saw, lost sight of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of us, even back then, trying to say, please look at this bigger picture. This isn't about conservatives and liberals or Republicans and Democrats anymore. There's a lot more at stake, but those voices were being lost. Um, And I think what part of the problem is, is that perhaps people don't know how governance itself works, meaning you, you do have to fight at some point for the bigger picture in order to get the details. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, the Affordable Care Act. It is not perfect. There's a lot of things wrong with it. However, if we were to lose it, there would be millions and millions of people without health care. So if you are going to squabble about the particulars of of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, then you are, you're gonna, you know, throw the baby out with the bucket or (laughs) <laughs> I'm horrible with idioms. I blame it on, on I'm a child of immigrants, but anyway. And so, but that is that is what we have to because right now there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot thousands of people. Last night I was on a move on dot org call with twenty thousand activists on the call. There's a lot of people wanting to do things. 
it is human nature that as we for as we move forward, there's going to be infighting. There's going to be people who are going to want to do things in a different way, who mm-hmm. want a different focus, who you know. But we cannot lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that we, you know, we have to come up with a platform, which is we want our civil rights protected. We want reproductive rights protected. Uh, we want immigration to be kept safe. We want, you know, we want intersectional community building. That is really what it's about. And uh, that's how politics works. You have to, um, you know, if you want a small piece of the pie, you have to say yes to, to, to some things that you don't necessarily want at this time. That's you know- what people it's at this time. We can fight about it later, but let's just get keep the pie at the least. One of the one of the difficult things in trying to bring people together, this is probably petty and emotional as opposed to rational, but we're dealing with emotions these days at a, at a really high level. Um, there's a group that has started on Facebook, and it was uh, predicated by a number of articles that came out in the media. Now I regret my vote for Trump. And one was a woman who said, I voted for Trump, but I didn't think he'd go after Planned Parenthood. And another one said, I voted for Trump, and now I realize he's never going to prosecute Hillary. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) On the one hand, I think it's important to bond with people who can move against Trump, even if we're miles apart. On the other hand, how do we triage who's... Who's open to messaging and who's not? Well, one very clear indication is who actually, well, let me start again. As you said, this is not rational, it's emotional because all politics and policy is emotional because what you are voting on is your values, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, even, though, even though people are like, oh, this is about an issue, ultimately that issue represents some value that you have. Um, now, if your values are that people who are of a certain color, race, or religion, uh, I'm going to shut down, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. I think, well, there's nothing more we can do. There's nothing more we can do to build community. Um, however, you do care about your children's education. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about if there's a voucher program in place, what is that going to do for your community? If there's, or if you have to pay $10,000 just to get uh, insurance and you can't afford that, if the ACA gets repealed, uh, and then that kind of, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I'm just saying like, for example, uh, let's, start, let's start there. You don't have to like my religion. You don't have to look at me if you don't like my color. But we do all want our children to be educated. We want our families and ourselves to be healthy. And we want to be able to not die of diseases that were <laughs> 150 years ago, right? We yes. want, there are, so let's find those commonalities. Um, and I think that as soon as you start labeling people, racist and sexist they may be they very well may be however that does nothing to build the bridge um uh, of the common human values that we share that's going to move us forward Mm -hmm. and uh one of the reasons i started this was to build intersectional communities is to have dialogues with other communities like uh ultimately we want to be able to do web conferencing so that if there's something that's affecting a county in Mississippi or in uh, North Dakota, that we're able to discuss it um, on that on that level as American citizens and not not because we're East Coast or they're Middle America or because I'm, you know, uh, a Hindu Indian woman or something, but because of, of something else which is driving us and forward as a nation. I'm talking to Amisha Upathia. She is with Still We Rise, which is a small and growing movement to help energize some of the folks that we saw out on the streets for the first time. And Amisha, I think one of the intimidating things for people, I was so pleased to see all the crowds. I know that we saw some old warriors in there, and I know we saw people out there for the first time. We can't ask them to turn their lives over to the revolution. (laughs) Leave your job, leave your family, do nothing but work on this. So when you talk about getting things down to bite size to let people 
do activism at the level they can allocate. Give me some examples of things that you can encourage people to do. Absolutely. I actually, uh, I've been involved in social justice ever since high school. And I have never attended a march uh, because I work on policy. I work on legislation and um, law and all of this. So I actually am not like this huge flaming activist that's like, you know, wearing signs and going around. I participated in the march this past weekend. Um, And that is what I want to convey to people. You do not have to be a flaming activist to be an engaged citizen. For example, and you were asking me in concrete examples, like uh, one of the nonprofits that will be speaking at our event tonight is Siren, uh, which deals with immigration services and rights. Tomorrow night, they are going to be discussing a resolution um, at the Santa Clara City Hall to it to uh, ensure immigrants that local law enforcement will not be enforcing any federal immigrant laws uh, that will entail deportation or other unfair or unequal treatment that didn't get its due process. So you don't have to go out and march, but if you are an immigrant, if you're or you are not sure of what's going to be happening to you, go and attend city hall meetings. Find mm-hmm. out what is happening in your community. And it is child friendly. So, you know, um, one of the things that I always emphasize is that, yes, people can't get to marches or even city hall meetings. They have child care problems. They, they may have night shift. They may not have access to the Internet. But um, what we hope to do on our website is to figure out how to reach those communities so everyone can be involved at the level they are involved. If you are interested in your children's education, get involved with the school board. Find out who's on uh, the board of trustees. Get involved. Know what your issues are. If you are relying on uh, Planned Parenthood or any other clinic for some health care, or find out what in your health care is dependent on the ACA and then fight for it. Mm-hmm. Then fight for it. And we will and one of the, you know, one of the things we hope to do is to show you how to do that. Um, so that because right now there's so much oversaturation of content and information and activism. But concentrate on what's important to you in your life. That will make a huge difference if it is repealed or if something else happens to it. And then work on it and find out ways you can work on it. Amisha, before I let you go, I want to get your opinion on something we hear conflicting information about. Uh, When you're reaching out to get hold of your representative, your senator, whomever, I've heard that, you know, petitions with thousands of signatures cannot be ignored. I've heard that phone calls can't be ignored. I've heard that you have to sit down and write something down and send it snail mail. And there seem to be all these various opinions about what's a waste of time and what is worth your time. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do have thoughts. Um, these are thoughts because I do myself want to do more factual. Be- I was a journalist, so I depend on facts and sources. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but this is from what I understand of legislators directly. Calls make the most difference because it ties up their their it ties up their staff. It ties up their offices. It ties up their schedule. Like, you know, when you're calling constantly on in multitudes, it does have an impact, uh, much more so than petitions, which are read like by interns, you know, uh-huh. frankly, uh, uh, and and are not, you know, maybe seen, may not be seen. Uh, but calls do make a difference. For example, I know that four of the um cabinet appointee hearings were delayed. They were, you know, they were going to be all, all the appointee hearings were supposed to be crammed into one or two days. um, But four of them got delayed because there were calls. People showed up to offices, uh, you know, uh, to, to request that uh, certain appointees be, be given due time and equal time so that the press can report on it. And so that did make a difference. Do not be cynical. Things like calls and showing up and letters, actually, you know, they do make a difference. These are elected officials. That means you are their boss. Not, you know, they answer to you. You always have to remember that. We, if someone is elected, they answer to their constituents. 
if you are a constituent, you have every right to ask for transparency and to and to request that your demands be heard at the least. So, And for those who are bought and paid for, at least we can get the word out there that we're giving them a conflicted, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're giving them a a conflicted goal that they can either pay the people who put them in office and will keep giving them money to put them in office versus the voters who put them in office. At least we can make them aware that we care. Yes. And the thing, and you've hit upon a good point that there are a lot of politicians who are bought, frankly, on both sides of the aisle. But you know what? That's how politics works. And the thing is, if you want to see that, then, hey, get on the issue of campaign finance reform. That's an issue. There are many nonprofits and many people around the country doing something about it. If you are unhappy with how that is working or how anything is working, find out how to get involved, because that is the reality of politics right now. Like right now, if I wanted to run, it would cost me a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I would need to know. I would, you know, and that's just that's just how it works. And therefore, it bars it bars quite a few committed people who would be good political leaders from running because you need you need donors, you Mm -hmm. need you need inside contacts. And uh, if you don't want that, then guess what? You have to change the system. You can't just sit, you know, and and you can change the system. It's not going to happen overnight, but you have to at least get involved. You know, what, I always compare this to like when people want to lose weight or get in shape, mm-hmm. but they don't want to exercise and they don't want to change how they're eating. <laughs> and then you complain. And then you complain. Like, of course, you're not going to lose the last 10 pounds or you're not going to, if you don't do anything, you know, then it's great to get bitter or cynical or be like, why does that person look so good? You know, because you, 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 you know, it's same with democracy for democracy to work. You have to work for it as well. And like I said, in your own way with whatever resources you have and for those people who are working night shifts who are living paycheck to paycheck there are nonprofits where they will be your voice you know like for example again siren which is coming out tonight there's a lot of immigrants who work with siren and they count on them to be their voice um and so hopefully you know we can expand all all of those people into the political process and not just those who can are able to do it because they have their time you know mm-hmm. everyone should be involved so amisha upathia and she is with still we rise amisha let's get the website out there well right now it's amisha.tv okay. m-i-s-h-a.tv someone got our <laughs> someone got our still we rise.org but we will be changing it but amisha.tv for now. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Amisha Upathia with Still We Rise. You can find the interview I mentioned with longtime activist Dr. Claiborne Carson online at indeepradio.com. Up next, we keep hearing the coming of Trump compared to Orwell's 1984. But who really knows 1984? A California teacher is making sure that kids understand exactly what it's all about once a year, he becomes Big Brother. That is next on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I'm looking for a vehicle. I'm looking for a ride. I'm looking for a party. I'm looking for a sign. I'm looking for the treason that I knew in 65. Beware the savage of 1984. Yeah, about half of David Bowie's Diamond Dogs album was inspired by George Orwell's 1984. And he wanted to do a whole musical based on that, but Orwell's widow was still alive at the time and she disapproved. But the novel itself and all its principles, relevant all over again. It is the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. I mentioned earlier some very Orwellian news tactics, most notably Kellyanne Conway's 
bizarre coining of alternative facts. Not unrelated, I think of a lot of America's inability to spot manipulated news, fake news, and just plain lies. I think a lot of that can be traced to our financially gutted education system, which was largely accomplished by Republicans, and the very successful effort to paint intellectual curiosity as elitism. So I've got this whole mental roster of what I wish were taught in every school. For one thing, the movie Wag the Dog, that's on my list. But at the top of the list, Orwell's 1984. Now, through a November story at Atlantic.com, the Atlantic.com, I found high school teacher Andrew Simmons. And Andrew doesn't just lecture on Orwell. He immerses his students in the experience of a totalitarian state. He gets to be Big Brother, or the collective power that fronts as Big Brother, depending on how you translate it. Andrew starts out by proposing cures for senioritis. You know, when the seniors are lagging, they don't pay attention. So he's going to start a program that benefits the seniors and snaps them back to attention. But before you know it, he is deflecting straight questions. Hmm. Demonizing those who ask them. Hmm and getting students to rat each other out for disloyal behavior. Now, he was doing all this before the toddler-in-chief took office. So let's see what's changed in that picture since he moved on in. Andrew Simmons, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, how's it going? Good to be here. I'm glad you're here. So you've got this walking, breathing experience of Oceania for your students. First of all, is there anything you'd like to add to the way I described the class? No, I think you did a, a good job of setting up more or less what the learning experience is supposed to feel like. The essential part of it is after the, the campaign, as I generally refer to it as, you know, of course I bring the students into it with the idea that it's something that they're a part of, and then eventually it becomes something that they're clearly subject to. Mm-hmm when it becomes obvious that it's about regulating them as much about much more than really it's about correcting problematic behavior on the part of their classmates is the reckoning phase at the end when they think about what they learned from it. And initially, so few of them seem to realize that before there's some, some nudging in that direction, so few of them seem to realize that the point was to reveal what level of rebellion they're really capable of and to what extent they will just follow directions for the purpose of maintaining a grade. What I should point out is that their loyalty to me and their disloyalty to classmates, that's all tied up in in what I pretend is a grade. Mm -hmm. So the choices that they make are about self-preservation, and they end up generally making the choice to rat out people for real or uh, imagined or conjured up acts of disloyalty for the purpose of ensuring that they get more points. And so I have this elaborate point system that allows them to do that. What becomes really interesting is that they think it's all about just preparing them to read the book. It's all about trying to actually fight the problem of lazy seniors not doing their work, not paying attention. When the real story is, well, when push comes to shove, do you take care of your your common person, right? Or do you let um, a powerful authority figure manipulate you. Mm-hmm. And, and generally speaking, they lose that fight. <laughs> sometimes one person rebels, maybe two people rebel, but there's never any, there's never a cohesive, sustained rebellion. There's, you know, sometimes a, a perfunctory rival flyering campaign or, or, or something like that, or a comment on social media, but there's never there's never a, a, a real fight that gets organized because they end up realizing that they're, 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 they don't know each other as well as they think they do, and they're, they're not as cohesive as they should be. And if you don't have a community that understands one another and supports one another and really knows one another, you don't get an effective rebellion than there is tyranny. Uh, there's an article, piece of the article in The Atlantic, a good teacher doesn't try to firm up an ideological resistance along partisan lines. Instead, a good teacher shows students how to discern clickbait from reported stories and to read both Breitbart mm-hmm. and The New York Times, not to keep a balanced personal perspective, so much as to examine how media outlets interpret and spin events. That's, that's mm-hmm. a huge undertaking when 
at least the impression I have is that kids aren't reading a whole lot of news these days. Am I wrong with that? Or is it you have to get them to start reading the news and then worry about the spin? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there's not a lot of reading going on. You know, there are a few sort of soapbox moments that happen in the unit. I like to refer to them as Clint Eastwood on the porch in a rocking chair, <laughs> yelling at the kids on his lawn moments. But, you know, when I, when tell, I tell them a story about my favorite bartender in Los Angeles who almost dropped out of high school and was 60 years old and a degenerate gambler and an alcoholic and would ask me while I was reading papers in the bar if he could pass my class. And I would say, well, do you read it right? And I go, I, I, I write you know, five-page letters to my mother in New Jersey, and I read a novel every week from behind the bar, and I say, well, look, I mean, you're already ahead of the game. You know, you're in better shape than most of my students who, for whom reading is not a social, it's not a, a, a form of entertainment. Right. Um, and it's not, and writing is not a, a, a necessary form of communication. And, and so you're absolutely right. They don't really read the news. Most of what they get is social media um, and that can be that that is curated for them. Their diet is curated for them based on what they've looked at before um, and what their friends tend to be interested in. So it's very easy, like adult Americans, for them to live in a world that's pretty much an alternate reality of sorts, <laughs> you know, one alternate reality or another. And when I when I mentioned in the article about trying to maintain a, a sort of balanced perspective where um, it is very hard for a, um, a progressive teacher in a moment like this to withhold, to hold back from saying, I'm disgusted by what I hear. I'm offended by what I hear. I'm scared right. by what I hear. Um, and as a teacher, um, to be professional, you can't, really, you can't really do that in public school. You have to sort of, things slip out, sentiments slip out. But I like to sort of do my best, um, and not just because I have, conservative students in the class who were Trump supporters during the election. Um, but, but just because for me, ethically, I feel like I'm in a better position when I steer students towards an objective reading of verified fact and have them come to conclusions. And when they use logic, they come to conclusions that tend to veer away from things that Breitbart might publish, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I need them to, to, see, to, to, to read that, to, to read that outlet and understand that there's a good, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but 15 to 25% of America that, that thinks that is the most reliable news source they could find. And to me, that's something pretty daunting that you're up against when you're teaching. It's not just it's not just the reading, the reading dearth that you encounter and the lack of familiarity with current events. It's, it, and, and the result is that, you know, you have these sort of fragments of ideas that students encounter on social media, but also just as with adults, it, it's, it's so easy for, for, for a student to only see a, a specific world of information. And that becomes challenging, too. It's funny when you mentioned the fact that there are students and, of course, parents who support Trump. I was thinking about an event that happened before the turn of the year, and that was a school where the art teacher was teaching calligraphy. And as an example, they pulled uh, an Islamic teaching, one of the teachings of Islam, essentially as a calligraphy exercise. And they had to close down the schools because the response was so angry and, you know, this was being painted as, you know, trying to proselytize to the students, trying to convert them. And I'm trying to picture how your class works out with parents when the mere existence of teaching the concept of Big Brother and putting it in the context of what's happening today might be taken as an affront or might be taken as politicizing the class. Yeah, I understand that. I, I actually, I never, I, I rarely mention the, during the unit's over now, but I rarely mention the president-elect's name over the course of the unit. I didn't at all over the course of the simulation in mm -hmm. which I was essentially imitating him. I when after, you know, once we were, um, I would say two thirds of the way through 1984 and we were looking for parallel to today's society, I had them do an inquiry assignment where they were, um, I did give them several clues of directions to go in. I gave them options that included, um, you know, fake news, 
that included political correctness, that included manipulation of language, that included propaganda usage, um, and I had them do research on their own and do a short response paper in which they essentially had a choose-your-own-adventure approach to seeing where the book would take them. And, you know, students students got to dictate that, and students took themselves where their political allegiances wanted them to go. And being in Marin County, uh, my classroom is, is largely full of liberal students, uh, so a, a large population of students who are immigrants and whose parents were immigrants, um, and, you know, a number of, of sort of wealthier tending to be wider liberal students. And so the vast majority of students took it, took, took this, this uh, project in an explicitly political direction. But there were students who did take the other tack, who instead wrote about, um, researched the sort of demonizing of conservative professors in, in, in academia, right? The idea that a professor who voices conservative beliefs might be accused of aggressing against students who feel offended by such a thing and to sort of take a um, because 1984 is a book that has has long been been claimed by conservatives as an indictment of communism and a sort of um, a general treatise in support of of individual freedom Mm -hmm. and so you can it's one of those it's a movable feast in other words that book is something you can really teach in a variety of ways and even though I think in my particular class, it ends up heading in a direction that very much makes sense in our times with the resistance possibilities that we're presented with in this particular political moment. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, if a student wishes and the student is inquisitive enough and smart enough, they can take it in a direction that is completely different. And I really do value that in the class. And, and I, and as much as I want to challenge those students, I also want them to not feel as if they are, limited or judged. Um, and I also want to challenge my students who are, are sort of knee-jerk liberal and young and really struggle when they encounter ideas that are contrary to theirs. And maybe being, you know, of their general political mindset myself, I don't just want to reward them for thinking kind of the way I think. I would like them to be um, to be better critical thinkers. And so I tend to challenge those students when the students uh, arrange a walkout. Um, I I offer criticism of certain things that were hallmarks of the walkout the next day, and I make suggestions, and I say, this is what someone might say who doesn't agree with you based on what they saw transpire at the walkout yesterday. This is what they would say. And so I feel like that's my responsibility as a teacher. Sim- to put it simply, is, is is not to steer them in a political direction, but to make them critical thinkers and to make them engage and to make them have that sort of internal BS detector that goes off when they see a phrase like alternative facts and they immediately think of the book that they read and the language that they digested with their high school English teacher and the conversation they had about how easily language is sort of manipulated and co-opted to put a spin on a specific ideology um, you know, alternative facts is something that I could write on the board and ask my students, connect this to 1984, and they would, they would be able to do that. And I think they can do that better, probably because they've not only been invited to make connections to our current political climate, but because they had the experience of living through a simulation that, that, that forced them to digest this. Because in the, in the course of that simulation, everything I, I gave them was in jargon, was in sort of... I created not a real language for my campaign, but I use I, I use manipulative language. I called punishments opportunities for success, and in other words, I, everything was sort of very it was simplistic, but it was designed to to be manipulative, and then to have them after the fact be able to look at it and realize how they were manipulated. And I think that um, I would be hard pressed to find um, more than a couple of students in each class that wouldn't immediately make make solid connections in 1984 uh, watching um conway's appearance and then her and then uh of course spicer's press conference i think that would just be a gold mine i kind of wish i were still teaching the unit now but i'm tempted tomorrow just to play that and have them respond to it just yeah record see, that for us and get back to us <laughs> we'd love to hear that <laughs> i'd like i'd I, I like it they they, they they're capable of seeing it, too, but it kind of connects back to what i was saying is that 
I, and this is Clint Eastwood on the porch again, but it's like when I was in high school and I'm not, I'm not old at all. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm 19, 18 years younger than 18 years older than my students. But when I was in high school, it wasn't as big a leap to see something on the news and, and digest it and break it down. And cause watching TV was watching TV and reading a newspaper was sort of part of my diet, mm-hmm. intellectual diet. And my students, absolutely not newspaper and really not even TV either. They don't watch TV for news. They, most of what they watch is on a phone. They watch YouTube videos and they watch TV shows and they watch, you know, uh, sort of like social media, satirical social media clips, nothing more than, you know, five minutes. And I'm being serious. I don't think I'm really exaggerating. They do watch movies, but most of their diet happens through their phone. And there's very little in the way of, of article reading. Most of what they read doesn't challenge them in terms of the vocabulary. I think just the sort of vocabulary of politics is something that they're pretty pretty short on, mm. if that makes any sense. You mean they like political them, literacy? Uh, oh, absolutely. When students don't have what they learn in class reinforced by their own social behaviors and entertainment outside of school, it makes what happens inside the, cl- inside the classroom all the more uh, challenging mm-hmm. to be effective. So if the government teacher is having students read current events and analyze bias in the way those current events are presented, and that's one class assignment, if students aren't just reading the newspaper anyway, every day or every other day or watching cable news every night with their families, then they're not having the opportunity to practice that skill. If it's only happening in academic context, it ends up not really carrying over to their day-to-day lives. And that, I think, is a really big challenge in education because every teacher, every good teacher thinks, I want to make critical thinkers out of my students, but if they're, if what they ingest outside of school doesn't necessitate critical thinking, then when are they going to get to use it? So, so it goes back to what you were saying, I think, right? When you said, you know, you have to get them to sort of start reading to begin with. And mm-hmm. um, that's, that's part of what English class is about, is just emphasizing the importance of that. I'm really glad you had time to talk to me. Thank you so much. I hope it was, I hope it was helpful. Andrew Simmons, if you want to look up that article, it's at theatlantic.com. You're looking for Teaching 1984 in 2016. I knew, I knew, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this. In the time it took me to talk to these fine people, put it together, and make a radio show out of it, more horrible stuff came out of Washington. Let me go with over on Capitol Hill. We hear from Republican Senator Jeff Sessions. He's still in his judiciary hearings during his his confirmation hearing to be the U.S. Attorney General. He says... He will not recuse himself from handling potential conflicts of interest involving Donald Trump or even his family members if confirmed as the nation's next attorney general. Quoted by Bloomberg as saying, if merely being a supporter of the president's during the campaign warranted recusal from involvement in any matter involving him, then most typical presidential appointees wouldn't be able to conduct, pardon me, would be unable to conduct their duties. I am not aware of a basis to recuse myself from such matters. (sighs) Hands off the president, huh? That's the guy I want at the top here. Here's another one. And this is Trump himself, Washington Post. And these all came in just while I was putting the show together. The Trump administration just told a whopper about the size of the federal workforce. Washington Post notes the president signed an executive order on Monday instituting a hiring freeze on all non-military federal employees. At the press briefing, Sean Spicer said the move counters the dramatic expansion of the federal workforce in recent years. Look how they're learning to call this kind of thing out. This is the Washington Post pointing out that in both raw number and percentage terms, this is an inaccurate statement. According to the BLS, there were 2.8 million employees on the federal payroll as of December. They've risen slightly since May 2014. That represents an increase of about 3%. By contrast, 
the civilian workforce, excluding federal employees, grew about 4.9% in the same period. So they busted him. They busted him on just lying to achieve what they want and making it seem like good for the American people. And let's move over here to the CDC because what I see happening is you have the Trump administration taking aim at so many agencies, so many avenues of communication, at, you know, getting information on employees who may be studying this or that. There's a terrifying energy around the White House now. And this story also comes from the Washington Post, just came in, with little warning or explanation the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention canceled a major climate change conference that had been scheduled for next month in Atlanta. It had been in the work for months. It was a chance for public health officials from around the U.S. to learn more about the risks to human health posed by the changing climate. CDC officials canceled the conference before the inauguration, sending a terse email to those who had been scheduled to speak at the event. The message didn't explain the reason behind the decision. Are we starting to see self-censoring here? Are we starting to see the snail kind of draw into its shell because it sees the danger outside? This is new. This just came out. So I'm conjecturing here. But knowing the way that the toddler-in-chief is going after science going after facts, it wouldn't surprise me if agencies like the CDC, who have knowledge he doesn't want to be true, if those agencies are taking on a protective coloration, getting as far away as they can before Trump has a chance to go after them. And finally, here's an update on something I said at the beginning of the show. We were talking about all the lies that Trump has told since, you know, the less than 48 hours in the office. I'm really starting to appreciate some of the energy coming from folks who are probing everything out of his mouth. And this time, it's the Huffington Post. You know how he talked about being applauded by the CIA and how beloved he was, and they didn't even sit down. Well, SV Date from the Huffington Post got to the bottom of that. Of course, he says, the CIA gave Trump standing ovations. He never let them sit. And the way it works is the CIA does not sit down until the president, and that's quoted in Huffington Post by Yale Eisenstadt, who spent more than half of her 13-year career in counterterrorism at the agency. So he's talking about hundreds of employees giving a standing ovation, Knowing or not, and either one is equally bad, knowing or not that it's his job as the president to say, sit down, have a seat. Instead, he tweeted, tweeted, there he goes again, had a great meeting at CIA headquarters yesterday, packed house, paid great respect to Wall, long standing ovations, amazing people, win. Yeah. So anyway, those are the developments in the mere time it took to put a radio show together of one hour. Oh, my gosh, there's another one. BuzzFeed. I'm not even going to read it. I'll just give you the headline. President Trump declared his inauguration a national day of patriotic devotion. A new national pride stirs the American soul and inspires the American heart. Thank God that's it for me (laughs) on the Bradcast. The last thing I want to do is work tomorrow when I can't even imagine the load that Brad is going to be taking on along with help from Desi. So I will leave you in their hands for tomorrow. Between now and then, my God, good luck, world. (laughs) 